0: Would you pray with me one more time? Father, use this foolish preacher to bring your word and to encourage us here today to draw us close to you in the midst of a world that is uh, going crazy. We know that you're still in control because you're sovereign over all things. So, Lord, may your word be established. Draw us close to you, Jesus. Be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we read the word of God? The live stream page goes up to verse eight, but we're only reading verses one through five this morning. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. Beginning in verse one. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him one hundred and forty four thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before uh, the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, uh, no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In the movie Wind River, Corey Lambert, played by actor Jeremy Renner, is a skilled hunter and tracker working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He assists local ranchers by protecting their livestock from predators like wolves. And in one of the early scenes from the movie, Corey is called to a ranch to investigate and deal with a predator that has been threatening A flock of sheep. As Corey arrives at the ranch, he finds a wolf circling the terrified sheep ready to attack. The tension in the scene builds as the wolf gets closer and closer to the vulnerable herd. And Corey, with his expert marksmanship, takes aim and he shoots the wolf, puts it down to protect the sheep from harm. And this scene serves to establish Corey's character as someone who is intimately familiar with the harsh realities of the wilderness and willing to do whatever it takes, both to the local wildlife and to the livelihoods of all his ranchers. It also illustrates the complexities of his job and the difficult choices he sometimes has to make in an unforgiving environment, a place called the Wind River. In this scene before us here in Revelation 14, 1 through 5, we see this peculiar group of men affectionately known as the 144,000. We were introduced to them in chapter 7 as God puts a seal of protection on them as they are deployed into the great tribulation, the great judgment of Jesus Christ to bring the gospel to a shaken up heathen world a world that has rejected Jesus. These 144,000 will be protected through the tribulation period by Jesus, and he will lose none of them. And as we see here in the text, there are not 143,999. There's 144,000. They all make it, and he will protect them from the false lamb and the beast described in Revelation chapter 13, the Antichrist. We see the result of their ministry as hundreds of thousands, if not millions are saved during the great judgment as, as John describes a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. That's interesting. Palm branches. Does that remind you of anything? Jesus' triumphal entry, where they're waving those in heaven for the victory that they hit that that was brought to them through the ministry of the hundred and forty-four thousand. That's in Revelation chapter seven, verse nine. Salvation will come to many. Many people during this period of time, and it will be the greatest harvest of souls in human history. Many will avoid the tyranny of Antichrist during this period and will live to see the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes to establish his rule and reign over planet earth. So at this point in the book of Revelation, we're halfway through the great judgment of God. And this passage stands in stark contrast to chapter 13, where the coming world leader, as I like to call him, the Antichrist, will swoon the world into a euphoric frenzy. He will deceptively take control of the world's political, economic, and spiritual systems. He will be allowed to have authority for a little while, And the Holy Spirit spells that time period out as a time, times and a half a time, or 1,260 days, or three and a half years. The Holy Spirit tells us in the text, he spells it out in three different ways, that it is a three and a half year period where he will be allowed to do his devious work. He will deceptively take control of everything. And he will be allowed to have that authority, but under the control of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, to expose the hearts and minds of people who have rejected him. Now, the word Antichrist does not necessarily mean against Christ, but it means in place of. It's a substitute. He's a cheap substitute whose goal and mind is to be worshiped and to steal admiration of God's imagers to himself something he's been trying to achieve since the garden. Someone once asked me, Brett, why would God do such a thing as pour judgment on this world? Why would a loving God do such a thing? I thought about that and I responded, maybe you're asking the wrong question. Maybe the question should be, why would God not pour out his wrath on this world? seems to be by not pouring his wrath out on this world, he's not being fair to himself. What an amazing God we serve, the mercy that he pours out to us every single day. And as through the book of Revelation, the great purpose of this period of time, described in chapter 6 through 19, is twofold. Number one, it's to shake up the heathen. The purpose of judgment is to get people to turn to Jesus Christ. Jesus breaks the seals in chapter 6, and he releases catastrophe after catastrophe on planet Earth. In chapter 9, he releases demons on the Earth to torment all of those in rebellion and opposition to Jesus Christ. We see not only do, they, do the people of the planet, the rejecters, the, rebellier, the, the, the rebellers, if I could use that word, we see that not only do they not repent, but they continue to worship the the demons that are tormenting them. Jesus is releasing judgment, not as an act of anger, but as an act of mercy to draw them to himself. The second reason for this period of time is to shake up and wake up a nation. Which nation? The nation Israel. Israel rejected Christ because Jesus didn't fit the mold that they were looking for in a Messiah. They wanted a political figure, someone who would represent and defend them from her enemies. They overlooked The real reason why Christ came, and that was to deal with the sinfulness of mankind. They ignored it. They said, we want someone who will defend us from our enemies. Israel right now is an apostate nation. In fact, the largest gathering of of celebration of LGBTQ pride parade is in Tel Aviv. And last year, there were over 350,000 people. But that does not mean God will not be faithful into bringing them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. They will turn eventually and repent. When they are under the thumb of the Antichrist and Jesus will deliver them. Jesus will deliver the nation of Israel. And they will finally embrace her true Messiah when he comes back. See, things are out of order right now. Jesus even told us when it, during his ministry he said go nowhere to the except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul even says in Romans 1 chapter 1 verse I believe 16 that it's to the salvation is to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Things are out of order right now because Israel has not received her Messiah yet when that happens, that's when world peace will finally happen under the rule and the reign. As it says in Isaiah 9, 6, that the government will be upon his shoulders. Jesus Christ will rule and reign over this planet. And there will finally be a world that we, will, that we long to be. As the scripture tells us, No, nor I has seen nor ear has heard, nor has that ever entered into the heart of a man, the things that God has for those who love him. It's going to be glorious. So let's get into the text. Look at verse 1. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. As John the Revelator describes the events in chapter 13 and the beast taking world control, it seems all would be lost. But look at John's reaction here in verse 1. He says, I looked and behold, like you need to see this. Take a look at this. Behold, the Greek word behold is a which means to fixate your attention John moves his gaze from Antichrist to Jesus Christ. To Jesus Christ. And what does he see? He sees Jesus with his 144 commandos, his GI Joes with a Kung Fu grip, standing with him on Mount Zion, claiming victory. Now, what is Mount Zion? What is this place? This is none other than Jerusalem, It is all the hills that make up Jerusalem. The most d- disputed piece of real estate in all the world right now, and you've seen it on the news in the last two days, is the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. David initially took it from the Jebusites, and he established the city of David in antiquity. But this is ground zero for the physical realm and the unseen Rome. This is where Jesus Christ will return and establish his permanent throne on planet Earth. And here, Jesus makes an appearance with his 144,000 as a way of declaring this piece of real estate is mine. Scripture speaks prophetically how Jesus will establish his rule from Mount Zion. In Psalm 48, 1 and 2, it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. What city is that? His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, in the far north, the the city of the great king. Joel 2.32 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved speaking during this period. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, escape the clutches of Antichrist, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Micah 4.1, it shall come to pass in the latter days, that's a key word in scripture, that the mountain of, Of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow into it. And there are so many more scriptures. Right now, things are out of order. But there will come a day when they will be put back in order. And the only way it's going to happen is when Jesus comes back. Is when Jesus comes back. I am so thankful that for the last 2000 years, Jesus has turned his attention to the Gentiles because none of us would be here. He went after the nations to make a name to to create a family for himself out of all nations. Israel has been displaced from their land for over 2000 years. Forgotten about. It was just a, all it was was a desert. In fact, during the Balfour Declaration, when, <clears throat> when England had control over it, nobody wanted it. It was just a desert. But then all of a sudden, May 14th, 1948, David Ben-Gurion on, on uh, Israeli Army Radio pronounced to the world, Israel is now a sovereign nation. It's a miracle. There has been no other nation on this planet do you know any Jebusites? Anybody know any Amalekites? Anybody know any Outisites or uptites? They're all gone. There, it's a miracle. It is a miracle that they are there. And this is what we're seeing. And Israel will embrace her Messiah. Listen to what it says in Zechariah 12: 10 and 11. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look when they look on me whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and they will weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Raman in the plain of Megiddo. They will look upon Jesus, they will see his wounds, and they will mourn. Oh my goodness, we missed missed him. And they will mourn. And even to this day, during the Jewish high holy days, especially Yom Kippur, which is the highest holy day in Israel right now, they are instructed to mourn and grieve, and they do not know why they do it. It's in preparation when he comes back and he is embraced as Messiah. Now notice that Jesus has his name marked on their foreheads. What a picture. What a contrast. None of them were lost. The Antichrist in chapter 13 marked his on their foreheads and God marked his on their foreheads. Do you see how the devil is just a copycat of everything God does? God will mark him, will mark them. Imagine what these 144,000 will see when they fulfill their ministry in Christ. In chapter 7 they're saved, marked and deployed for ministry. They will have gone through horrible carnage and destruction. They will share the gospel with people and be heartbroken when they see those whom they shared the gospel with reject Christ and they take the mark of the antichrist. They'll be heartbroken when those who have converted to Christ through their ministry will suffer at the hands. And I believe the church will be gone, by the way. But but at all, they'll survive, and they'll gain the ultimate reward, Jesus himself. You see, I don't know what kind of tribulation you're going through and what ministry God has assigned you personally. But I'll venture to guess it's been hard. It's been hard. It's hard watching people you love fall into self-destructive patterns. It's hard when you show the love of Christ and you're rejected. It's hard when you're obedient to the Lord and it seems from the outset you have nothing to show for it. Just know that God sees you and God sees the labor that you do for him. And it is not in vain. The Lord has not called you and me to be successful. He has called you and me to be faithful wherever he has put us. I think sometimes we need to take stock in where the Lord has placed us in our lives. And we just need to bloom where we're planted. We have a tendency to long for things uh, that distract us from what we're called to do right now. Ministry is not standing behind this pulpit, by the way, and preaching the word. Ministry is wherever you are. You are all in full-time ministry, just so you know. God just decided to route your paycheck in a different way. Just know, like these 144,000 faithful followers of Christ, whatever you're going through, Jesus will bring you through it. He'll bring you through it. And you know what reward you get? You get him. You get Jesus. You get a closeness and an intimacy that, that you wouldn't otherwise have if if he hadn't led you through difficult times, you gain his presence, you gain his power, and you gain his peace. If you're in Christ, you are marked by God. Shoot, there might even be a mark on your forehead right now, you don't even know it, that Jesus put there. We don't know. But Jesus will see you through whatever you're going through today. Look at verse two. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. Now notice all of a sudden the scene shifts. Where John the Revelator hears a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters. You'll notice that the imagery appears elsewhere in Scripture Revelation four five, Revelation six one, Revelation eleven nineteen, and there's a couple places in the Old Testament. The voice that sounded from heaven was authoritative. It was loud and unmistakable to the hearers of planet earth during when this period happens. This is no doubt the victory song of the lamb as he stands on Mount Zion to declare his rulership and authority over planet earth. I find this intriguing. Why? Because the tribulation period has not ended yet. And the song of the victory of the lamb is being played from heaven. Jesus is not yet ridden down on his white horse. That's chapter 19. He rode in to Jerusalem on a scooter, but when he comes back, he's riding in on a hummer. I mean, I don't know. It's going to be so too with you and me, brothers and sisters, wherever your fight is and whatever you're going through, We do not fight for victory in our lives. We fight from it. The victory that the lamb has already secured for us. We fight from that. His sacrifice on the cross. Things may look dark and bleak, but the outcome has already been been determined. And you are in the grip of the lamb's hand. It reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There. There. In, in Daniel chapter 3. The Lord allowed them to be thrown in that furnace. The Lord didn't just deliver them from out of the furnace. He delivered them while they were inside of it. And what you'll notice about that passage is when they went in. To that fire. They were bound. They were bound. But it was inside the fire that their bonds. Melted away. Not only that, but there was a fourth in there with them, and that was none other than Jesus. And we find as we go through hard things, as the Lord takes us through difficult times, the, the sin that binds us all of a sudden gets broken, and we're changed, and we come out. We come out. On March 16, 1985, Terry Anderson lived and worked in Beirut, Lebanon, as the chief Middle East correspondent for the Associated Press. He had just finished a game of tennis when he was abducted by terrorists right off the street. He was thrown into a trunk of a car and he was shuttled away to a secret location where he was held hostage for the next six years and nine months. He became the longest-held Hostage of several Americans taken captive by a group of radical Shiite Muslim militants in an attempt to drive U.S. military forces from Lebanon during their long and bloody civil war. This long captivity gave Mr. Anderson, no, this is not the Matrix, ample time for serious soul-searching concluding that he was not the person he wanted to be. He promised God that if he had been given another chance, he would do better. He said, I'll go to church, I'll give to the poor, spend my life on good causes, I'll read the Bible and try to understand what's being asked of me. In all his soul searching, God used his captivity to bring him to a greater faith and a renewed life in Christ. He said, I quote, I drank too much, but in prison there's no alcohol I chase women, but there's no women in prison. I'm arrogant. What a better place to put me than at the hands of these arrogant, uncaring men. I've been careless of others, feeling these people will give not one tiny thought about me. I've been careless. I've been agnostic most of my life. My only comforts here are the Bible and my prayers, end quote. When I'm going through difficult times, it helps me to see what's important. And I don't give a second thought about my sin when I go through a rough time. It gives God a chance to show how faithful he is. And it changes my heart to where I am fulfilled completely in Christ alone and nowhere else. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. There's a blessing of his presence I experience with him. That I otherwise wouldn't and it changes me and it refines me into a more holy image and reflection of Christ. As Jesus brother James says, count it all joy. My brothers, would you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. God loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. And what is the result? The result is we sing, like these 144,000, we sing a new song before the Lord. We sing a new song. Look at verse 3. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They sang a new song. What does that mean? Why is it that these 144,000 could know this song, yet no one else know it? Excuse me. These men bore the brunt of the horrors of the tribulation. And they would be the special focus of attention of Jesus and enjoy a special fellowship with him. The result of these men going through what they went through means that there was a connection to heaven. The song was coming from heaven in the text. They were singing a song directly from heaven, and because they went through what they went through, heaven came to them. It has once been said, I think it was C.S. Lewis, a little faith will get you to heaven, but a little more faith will get heaven to you. And when they came through the tribulation, these men, the result of these men going through what they went through means a special connection. And when we come through difficult times like these men, we are connected to heaven in a way that others don't know or haven't experienced before. There's a new song in our hearts and a renewed purpose in our lives. When we allow God to work in and through our suffering and allow him to bring us to the other side, heaven comes to us. As Hebrews 12 says, there's a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In Acts 4, excuse me, Acts 14, Paul was in a town called Lystra. Lystra. And there were Jews that came from Antioch and Iconium who manipulated and persuaded the crowds to execute Paul by stoning him. And they did. And of course, his soulless body lied there dead. And his disciples took him out of the city. The disciples gathered around him, assuming in prayer. And Paul rose up. All of a sudden, he just gets up from being dead. And he walks back into Lystra from where he was stoned. And I always scratch my head and go, how could he do that? He was just stoned to death. And he gets up and goes, I'm going back. (laughs) What a wild thought. How could he do that? But you see, I believe Paul was dead because I think he describes this experience in, in 2 Corinthians 12, where he says, I know a man in Christ Fourteen years ago, whether alive or dead, I really don't know, was caught up in the third heaven where he saw things unlawful to speak about. The Lord gave him a special trip to heaven. And Paul saw it, saw the glory of God. Paul went to heaven. He was in the presence of the glory of God. He saw the wonders of God. And I believe this is why he wasn't afraid to go back to Lystra. Would you be afraid of death if you saw the glory of God? And yet, there are hundreds of testimonies of people who have died on the operating table who have experienced the presence of Jesus, and they come back and they say, I'm not afraid of death. David even said, I waited in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord he inclined to me and he heard my cry and he drew me up from a pit of destruction out of the miry bog and he set my feet upon a rock and he made my steps secure. And what what was the result? And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. David was delivered somehow out of a bad situation and as the Lord often did, delivered him, and David sang a new song. A new song. And that's why we go through those times, so that when we come out the other side, God puts a new song in our heart. Like these 144,000, a song that we experience. Of him. Jim Lovell, who was a famed astronaut and commander of the failed Apollo 13 mission to the moon, was once asked if he had ever faced genuine fear of hopelessness. And he responded by recounting the events of a particular night mission over the Sea of Japan during World War II. The fighter jet he was piloting was severely crippled. The, the airframe was bent. Both his radar and homing devices failed, so his instrumentation panels failed in the dark. He was flying blind, and he knew... That he wouldn't even be able to see the lights of his aircraft carrier below because they were sailing in blackout mode due to combat conditions. As he turned on his map light to try to get his bearings, all his lights and instrumentations shorted out. Without his altimeter, he had no way of gauging how close he was to crashing in the darkness of the waters below. That is scary. And just when he felt all hope was lost, he saw the faint phosphorescent glow of a long trail of algae. He went on to explain that large ships churn up the algae in their wake as they cut through the ocean seas, and he knew his carrier had to be close. It was like a long carpet laid out for me, he said. Had his lights not failed, he would never have been able to see the faint glow below. And he wistfully recalled, you never know what events will transpire until you get home. You see, I think that's a lesson for us. I think God takes us through difficult times and he allows the lights to go out so that all we see is Jesus. My dad used to post, a had a... Uh, thing on his mirror a piece of paper on the on his mirror that said when you know that the lord is the only thing you have you realize he's the only thing you ever need never forgot that look at verse four it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits. We'll get back to that first fruits here in a second for God and the lamb and in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. And it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These men are virgins. So we see here, they don't defile themselves with women. They do not commit any kind of sexual immorality or fornication or impurity they chose to stay chaste for christ they chose to live lives of celibacy so they could fully devote themselves to jesus and the mission of his gospel it says here in verse four that they are virgins so we know by this text that these are men because they don't defile themselves with women and they are virgins this tells me that these men look just like who Look just like Jesus. They were given the grace to set themselves apart for the Lord's service during this period of time. And there are times when the Lord sets us apart for something that he wants us to do. Uh, I, I admire Kirk for, you know, he wasn't married for years and he devoted his whole life to the Lord in New York City. I admire that. The Lord set him apart I know he had the desire to be married, and, and when it was time, uh, he connected Sarah and he together, but he, set him, he was set apart for the work. And that's a good thing. And there are times when the Lord will set you apart for something he wants you to do. In fact, Paul instructs married couples in 1 Corinthians 7 to set a short period of time aside from sexual intimacy to give themselves to prayer and fasting for a purpose. Listen, if you're single and the Lord has given you the grace to remain single, you have an incredible advantage. You have no other responsibilities other than to the Lord. You have that advantage to give yourself fully to the ministry that God has called you to. And if you're married, that's fine too. But if you're single, that's a huge advantage. Paul mentions this, in 1 Corinthians 7, when he says, I want you to be free from anxiety, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. Now he's not saying that, that it's bad to be married, and he goes on to explain what he means. He's saying, all he's saying there in the passage is that it is an advantage to single people to be devoted to what God has for them. And due to the nature of what God calls you to do, he may ask you to set some aspect of your life aside to just focus on him. Many years ago, we had had our 11th child and I was really struggling. I lost count. How many do we have? I don't know. I forgot. Um, My wife used to have a chronic case of pregnancy. Anyway, so we were struggling to pay our bills. And I was like, man, I mean, scraping the bottom of the barrel. Like we were, the Lord was always faithful, but it was hard. And I remember specifically the Lord called me to fast. He said, I want you to fast. And I've been reading in Daniel 10 where Daniel prayed for 21 days. And and on the 21st day, the angel that had been in a huge MMA match with the demon of Persia broke through and delivered a message to Daniel. I thought, well, so my uncle and I decided to do it together. My uncle and I fasted for 21 days together, prayed every night. You know what's interesting? Setting that that time aside for the Lord, nothing changed in my finances. But you know what changed? I changed. I changed. God changed me and that's why he sets you apart because he wants to change you. Eventually the finances did change and the Lord blessed us um, with more money. But there are times when he sets you apart for things that he wants you to do for him. They walked in power. These 144,000. Why? Because they were pure. Pure. They spoke with authority. Why? Because they were pure. They had a song in their heart for Jesus and they followed it. Why? Because they were pure. God made them pure. Purity pays. It pays to walk in the purity of the Lord, to remove those unholy things that are sinful And these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits. You see that? You see that? As first fruits. This is intriguing. Verse 4 in our text says that these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. The question you have to ask yourself is first fruits of what? Well, I want to postulate that these are the first fruits of the salvation of the nation of Israel. They are the first fruits of salvation during the period of time known as the great tribulation. I also want you to notice that if they were first fruits, that means they are not a part of the church. This is a whole different group of people. The church, I believe, is in heaven tucked away. Why? Because the church is not subject to God's wrath. Why is that? Because Jesus took the wrath of God for us. Wrath was poured out on our Savior as our substitute to set us in right relationship to God. And here, during the Great Tribulation, God's wrath is poured out on a world that has rejected the cross and Christ. So this wrath is God dealing with sin. Either sin gets dealt with through Christ and his finished work on the cross, or it gets dealt with directly to you and me. Either way, sin must be dealt with, and that's what the purpose of the judgment is. These 144,000, if they were a part of the church, then they would just be added to the church. Oh, come on, Brett. How do you know that? Because the Greek word for church is the word ekklesia. The word ekklesia does not appear in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Those are the judgment chapters. Those are the judgment chapters of the book. Now, saints are mentioned in in, in the book. Saints are mentioned, but these are tribulation saints, as described in Revelation 7. Revelation 3.10, Jesus promised the church would be spared from this judgment. The Greek word for saint is heragos, which means to be set apart or consecrated. It's a junk drawer term to describe God's chosen people. But when we talk about the church, that's a whole different entity than Israel and even the tribulation saints. There's a clear distinction. Even Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Meaning that Jesus in his own words said the church hadn't existed yet and did not exi- is exist until Acts chapter 2. The 144,000 are a whole different group of saints. Saints. Israel was a group of saints. The church was a group of saints and Israel is also a group of saints. And Paul even says in Romans where he says, we are the first fruits speaking to the Roman. We're the first fruits of salvation. They are the first fruits. I believe the church is not here. I believe we are in heaven. So I hate to be the bearer of good news, but if you're in Christ and you've repented of your sins, and you've received Jesus by faith and his work on the cross, I do not believe that God's wrath is going to be poured out on you. However, if you're playing games with God and putting on a religious facade and living in a way you just want to live apart from obedience to Jesus Christ, then I'm afraid for you. I want to call you to repentance and faith in, in the Savior. My stepfather, before he got saved many years later, said, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to get saved until when I see everything start to go down. And then the thought occurred to me. I said, if you can't live for Christ now, what makes you think you can live for him then? But thank God he did come to faith in Christ. You want to hear something crazy? My dad led my stepdad to faith in Christ. How cool is that? Only the Lord can do that. In closing, so what is the beauty of the 144,000? Are these guys super soldiers? Are they some sort of super Christian? No. No. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, he made the 144,000 who they are. And he made them, Jesus made them to be able to stand in his presence because of his sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, because our lamb sacrificed himself for you and me, we don't stand in our own strength and in our own righteousness We stand in his that was imputed to us as a gift to our count so that we can stand with Christ. He gives us the ability to stand with him on Mount Zion for all eternity in his presence. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And whatever tribulation you're going through, he will not allow you to fall if you are in him. He has already taken the fall for you at Calvary so that you can stand. And someday, because of his sacrifice on on your behalf, you too shall worship him and feast with him on Mount Zion. Oh, what a glorious day that's going to be. And I believe that it could be soon. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, so much for these 144,000 that are just an example of what you make men and women to be in your presence, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you give us the strength. You, you cause us to stand in your presence because of your great sacrifice. And we give you all the glory for that. Help us to stand in faith and in courage. In Jesus' name, amen.